You know right. it can hear you, right? So I'm about to stop crunching. Three, two. Welcome back to Rejects Book Club. We're concentrating on chapter a day. Animal Farm. Chapter 5 by George Orwell. What up, though? Thanks for joining us again. As winter drew on, Molly became more and more troublesome. She was late for work every morning and excused herself by saying that she had overslept. And she complained of mysterious pains, although her appetite was excellent. On every kind of pretext, she would run away from work and go to the drinking pool, where she would stand foolishly gazing at her own reflection in the water. But there were also rumors of something more serious. One day, as Molly strolled blithely into the yard, flirting her long tail and chewing at a stalk of hay, Clover took her aside. Molly, she said, I have something various to say to you. <laughs> I have something very serious to say to you. This morning, I saw you looking over at the hedge that divides Animal Farm from Foxwood. One of Mr. Pilkington's men was standing on the other side of the hedge. And I was a long way away, but I'm almost certain I saw this. He was talking to you, and you were allowing him to stroke your nose. What does that mean, Molly? He did. I wasn't. It, it isn't true, cried Molly, beginning to prance about and paw the ground. Molly, look me in the face. Do you give me your word of honor that that man was not stroking your nose? It isn't true, repeated Molly. But she could not look Clover in the face, and the next moment she took to her heels and galloped away into the field. A thought struck Clover. Without saying anything to the others, she went to Molly's stall and turned over the straw with her hoof. Hidden under the straw was a little pile of lump sugar and several bunches of ribbon of different colors. Three days later, Molly disappeared. For some weeks, nothing was known of her whereabouts. Then the pigeons reported that they had seen her on the other side of Willingdon. She was between the shafts of a smart dog cart painted red and black, which was standing outside a public house. A fat, red-faced man in check breeches and gaiters, who looked like a publican, was stroking her nose and feeding her with sugar. Her coat was newly clipped, and she wore a scarlet ribbon round her forelock. She appeared to be enjoying herself, so the pigeon said. None of the animals ever mentioned Molly again. In January, there came a bitterly, bitterly hard weather. The earth was like iron, and nothing could be done in the fields. Many meetings were held in the big barn, and the pigs occupied themselves with planning out the work of the coming season. It had come to be accepted that the pigs, who were manifestly cleverer than the other animals, should decide all questions of farm policy, though their decisions had to be ratified by a majority vote. This arrangement would have worked well enough if it had not been for the disputes between Snowball and Napoleon. These two disagreed at every point.
point where disagreement was possible. If one of them suggested sowing a bigger acreage with barley, the other was certain to demand a bigger acreage of oats. And if one of them said that such and such field was right for the cabbages, the other would declare that it was useless for anything except roots. Each had his own following, and there were some violent debates. At the meetings, Snowball often won over the majority by his brilliant speeches. But Napoleon was better at canvassing support for himself in between times. He was especially successful with sheep. Of, of late, the sheep had come to bleeding. Four legs good, two legs bad, both in and out of season. And they often interrupted the meeting with this. It was noticed that they were especially liable to break into four legs good, two legs bad at crucial moments in Snowball's speeches. Snowball had made a close study of some back numbers of farmer and stock breeder, which he had found in the farmhouse, and was full of plans for innovations and improvements. He talked learnedly about field drains, silage, and basic slag, and it worked out a complicated scheme for all the animals to drop their dung directly into the fields at a different spot every day to save the labor of cartage. Napoleon produced no schemes of his own, but said quietly that snowball would, snowballs would come to nothing and seemed to be biding his time. But of all the controversies, none was so bitter as the one that took place over the windmill. In the long pasture, not far from the farm buildings, there was a small knoll, which was the highest point on the farm. After surveying the ground, Snowball declared that this was just the place for the, a windmill, which could be made to operate a dynamo and supply the farm with electrical power. This would light the stalls and warm them in winter, and would also run a circular saw, a chafe cutter, a mango slicer, and an electric milking machine. The animals had never heard of anything of this kind before, for the farm was an old-fashioned one, and had only the most primitive machinery. And they listened in astonishment when Snowball conjured up pictures of fantastic machines which would do their work for them while they grazed at their ease in the fields or improve their minds with reading and conversation. Within a few weeks, Snowball's plans for the windmill were fully worked out. The mechanical details came mostly from three books which had belonged to Mr. Jones. 1,000 Useful Things to Do About the House, Every Man His Own Bricklayer, and Electricity for Beginners. Snowball used as his study a shed which had once been for incubators and had a smooth wooden floor suitable for drawing on. He was closeted there for hours at a time. With his books held open by a stone and with a piece of chalk grip between the knuckles of his trotter, he would move rapidly to and fro drawing in line after line and uttering little whimpers of excitement. Gradually, the plans grew into a complicated mass of cranks and cogwheels, covering more than half of the floor, which the other animals found completely unintelligible, but very impressive. All of them came to look at Snowball's drawings at least once a day. Even the hens and ducks came and were at pains not to tread on the chalk marks. Only Napoleon held aloof. He had declared himself against the windmill 
from the start. One day, however, he arrived unexpectedly to examine the plans. He walked heavily round the shed, looked closely at every detail of the plans, and snuffed at them once or twice. Then, stood for a little while while contemplating them out of the corner of his eye. Then suddenly, he lifted his leg, urinated over the plans, and walked out without uttering a word. The whole farm was deeply divided on the subject of the windmill. Snowball did not deny that to build it would be a difficult business. Stone would have to be carried and, and built up to, into the walls. Then the sails would have to be made, and after that, there would need, be a need for dynamos and cables. How these were procured, Snowball did not say. But he maintained that it could be done all in a year. And thereafter, he declared, so much labor would be saved that the animals would only need to work three days a week. Napoleon, on the other hand, argued that the great need of the moment was to increase food production and that if they waste time on the windmill, they would all starve to death. The animals formed themselves into two factions under the slogan, vote for Snowball and the three-day week and vote for Napoleon and the full manger. Benjamin was the only animal who did not side with either faction. He refused to believe either that food would become more plentiful or that the windmill would save work. Windmill or no windmill, he said, life will go on as it always gone on. That is, badly. Apart from the disputes over the windmill, there was the question of the defense of the farm. It was fully realized that though the human beings had been defeated in the battle of the cowshed, that they, may, they might make another attempt, more determined attempt, they might make a more determined attempt to recapture the farm and reinstate Mr. Jones. They had all the more reason for doing so because the news of their defeat had spread across the countryside and made the animals on the neighboring farms more rest restive than ever. As usual, Snowball and Napoleon were in disagreement. According to Napoleon, what the animals must do was procure firearms and train themselves in the use of them. According to Snowball, they must send out more and more pigeons and stir up rebellion among the animals on the other farms. The one argued that if they could not defend themselves, they were bound to be conquered. The other argued that if rebellion happens everywhere, they would have no need to defend themselves. The animals listened first to Napoleon, then to Snowball, and could not make up their minds which was right. Indeed, they always found themselves in agreement with one who was speaking at the moment. At last, the day came when Snowball's plans were completed. At the meeting on the following Sunday, the question of whether or not to begin work on the windmill was to be put to vote. When the animals had assembled in a big barn, Snowball stood up and, though occasionally interrupted by bleeding from the sheep, set forth his re reasons for advocating the building of the windmill. Then Napoleon stood up to reply. He said very quietly that the windmill was nonsense and that he advised nobody to vote for it and promptly sat down again. He had spoken for barely 30 seconds and seemed almost indifferent as to the effect he produced. At this, Snowball sprang to his feet and the shouting down the sheep who had begun bleeding again. 
broke into a passionate appeal in favor of the windmill. Until now, the animals have been about equally divided in their sympathies, but in a moment, Snowball's eloquence had carried them away. In glowing sentences, he painted a picture of Animal Farm as it might be when sordid labor was lifted from the animals' backs. His imagination had now run far beyond the chafe cutters and turnip slicers. Electricity, he said, could operate threshing machines, plows, harrows, rollers, and reapers and binders, besides supplying every stall with its own electrical light, hot and cold water, and an electrical heater. By the time he had finished speaking, there was no doubt as to which way the vote would go. But just at this moment, Napoleon stood up and casting a peculiar, peculiar Cylon look at Snowball, uttered a high-pitched whimper uh, of a kind no one had ever heard him utter before. At this, there was a terrible baying sound outside, and nine enormous dogs wearing brass-studded collars came bounding into the barn. They dashed straight for Snowball, who only sprang from his place just in time to escape their snapping jaws. In a moment, he was out of the door and they were after him. Too amazed and frightened to speak, all the animals crowded through the door to watch the chase. Snowball was racing across the long pasture that led to the road. He was running only as a pig can run, but the dogs were close on his heels. Suddenly, he slipped, and it seemed certain that they would have him. Then he was up again, running faster than ever. Then the dogs were gaining on him again. One of them all but closed his jaws on Snowball's tail, but Snowball whisked it free just in time. Then he put on an extra spurt, and with a few inches to spare, slipped through a hole in the hedge and was seen no more. Silent and terrified, the animals crept back into the barn. In a moment, the dogs came bounding back. At first, no one had been able to imagine where these creatures came from, but the problem was soon solved. They were the puppies whom Napoleon had taken away from their mothers and reared privately. Though not yet full grown, they were huge dogs and as fierce looking as wolves. They kept close to Napoleon. It was noticed that they wagged their tails to him in the same way as the other dogs had been used to do to Mr. Jones. Napoleon, with the dogs following him, now mounted onto the raised portion of the floor where Major had previously stood to deliver his speech. He announced that from now on, the Sunday morning meetings would come to an end. They were unnecessary, he said, and wasted time. In future, all questions relating to the working of the farm will be settled by a special committee of pigs, presided over by himself. These will meet in private and afterwards communicate their decisions to the others. The animals will still assemble on Sunday mornings to salute the flag, sing Beast of England, and receive their orders for the week, but there will be no more debates. In spite of the shock that Snowball's expulsion had given them, the animals were dismayed by this announcement. Several of them would have prote protested if they could even find the right arguments. Even Boxer was vaguely troubled. He set his ears back, shook his forelock several times, and tried hard to marshal his thoughts. But in the end, he could not think of anything to say. 
Some of the pigs themselves, however, were more articulate. Four young porkers in the front row uttered shrill squeaks of disapproval, and all four of them sprang to their feet and began speaking at once. But suddenly, the dogs sitting around Napoleon let out deep, menacing growls, and the pigs fell silent and sat down again. Then the sheep broke out into a tremendous bleeding of four legs good, two legs bad, which went on for nearly a quarter of an hour and put an end to any chance of discussion. Afterwards, Squealer was sent round the farm to explain the new arrangement to the others. Comrades, he said, I trust that every animal here appreciates the sacrifice that Comrade Napoleon has made in taking this extra labor upon himself. Do not imagine, comrades, that leadership is a pleasure. On the contrary, it is a deep and heavy responsibility. No one believes more firmly than Comrade Napoleon that all animals are equal. He would be only too happy to let you make decisions for yourself. But sometimes, you might make the wrong decisions, comrades. And then where will we be? Suppose you had decided to follow Snowball with his moonshine of windmills, Snowball, who, as we all know, was no better than a criminal. He fought bravely at Battle of Cowshed, said somebody. Bravery is not enough, said Squealer. Loyalty and obedience are more important. And as to the Battle of the Cowshed, I believe the time will come when we shall find that Snowball's part in it was much exaggerated. Discipline, comrades, iron discipline. That is the watchword for today. One false step and our enemies would be upon us surely. Surely, comrades, you do not want Jones back. Once again, this argument was unanswerable. Certainly, the animals did not want Jones back. If the holding of debates on Sunday mornings was liable to bring him back, then debates must stop. Boxer, who had now had the time to think things over, voiced the general feeling by saying, if Comrade Napoleon says it, it must be right. And from then on, he adopted the maxim, Napoleon is always right, in addition to his private motto of, I will work harder. By this time, the weather had broken and the spring plowing had begun. The sheds where Snowball had drawn his plans of the windmill had been shut up and it was assumed that the plans had been rubbed off the floor. Every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, the animals assembled in the big barn to receive the orders for the week. The skull of Old Major, now clean of flesh, had been interred, into the, interred from the orchard and set up on a stump at the foot of the flagstaff beside the gun. After the hoisting of the flag, the animals were required to file past the skull in a reverent manner before entering the barn. Nowadays, they did not sit all together as they had done in the past. Napoleon, with Squealer and another pig named Minimus, who had a remarkable gift for composing songs and poems, sat on the front of the raised platform with the nine young dogs forming a semicircle around them and the other pigs sitting behind. The rest of the animals sat facing them in the main body of the barn. Napoleon read out the orders for the week in a gruff solidarity style. And after singing, and after a single singing of Beast of England, all the animals dispersed. 
On the third Sunday after Snowball's expulsion, the animals were somewhat surprised to hear Napoleon announce that the windmill was to be built after all. He did not give any reason for having changed his mind, but merely warned the animals that this extra task would, be her would mean very hard work, and it might even be necessary to reduce their rations. The plans, however, had all been prepared down to the last detail. A special committee of pigs had been at work upon them for the past three weeks. The building of the windmill, with various other improvements, was expected to take two years. That evening, Squealer explained privately to the other animals that Napoleon had never in reality, in reality been opposed to the windmill. On the contrary, it was he who had advocated it in the beginning. And the plan which Snowball had drawn on the floor of the incubator shed had actually been stolen from among Napoleon's papers. The windmill was, in fact, Napoleon's own creation. Why then, somebody asked, had he spoken so strongly against it? Here, Squealer looked very sly. That, he said, was Comrade Napoleon's cunning. He had seemed to oppose the windmill, simply as a maneuver to get rid of Snowball, who was a dangerous character and a bad influence. Now that Snowball was out of the way, the plan could go forward without his, without his interference. This, said Squealer, was something called tactics. He repeated a number of times. Tactics, comrades, tactics. Skipping round and whisking his tail with a merry laugh. The animals were to not certain what the word meant, but Squealer spoke so persuasively and the three dogs who happened to be with him growled so threateningly that they had accepted his explanation without further questions. Whew, it's so hot, it's 95 degrees. Thanks for joining me. See you tomorrow, I love you.